Amen. Amen. Give the Lord a praise tonight. Amen. Father, we bless you and thank you tonight. Thank you, God, for your presence. We just ask you, Lord, to move in our midst. Lord, and have your way. Just breathe upon us tonight as we worship you. We give you thanks, Lord, for Dr. Lee Arden and all you're going to do tonight. And everybody said amen. Give him another praise. Let's come on down and worship him tonight. Amen. Welcome, you guys, on a Saturday night. It's time to pull out all the stops. We're here to have church tonight. Amen. Amen. I know we broke some mindsets last night. And I just pray those things continually stay on our mind. That we would, those things would be broken in Jesus' name. So we just welcome you, Holy Spirit, into this house tonight. Do what you, you do. Bring what you bring, Holy Spirit. We allow you to do that. We say yes, yes to all that you have for us tonight, Lord. We just open our hearts to you, Lord. Bless your name. Saturday was silent, surely it was through. Since when has impossible ever stopped you? Friday's disappointment was Sunday's empty tomb. Since when has impossible ever stopped you? This is the sound of dry bones rattling. This is the praise make a dead man walk again. Open the grave, I'm coming out. I'm gonna live, gonna live again. This is the sound of dry bones rattling. Cost of fire is stirring something new. You're not gonna run out of miracles anytime soon. Yeah, resurrection power runs in my veins too. I believe there's another miracle here in this room. This is the sound of dry bones rattling. Make a dead man walk again Open the grave I'm coming out I'm gonna live, gonna live again This is the sound of dry bones rattling Rattle Ooh, There's a coming together Something's happening in the spirit in this nation. Amen. Change is happening. My God is able to save and deliver and heal and restore anything that he wants to. Just ask the man that was thrown on the bones of Elisha if there's anything that he can do just as the stone that was rolled at the tomb in the garden what happens when God says to move 
Lord shake us up.
perfect submission All is at rest I know the author of tomorrow Has ordered my steps So this is my story
situation comes, he is the one that raises us up with his right hands. We bless you, Lord. Yes, Lord. We bless you.
your hands up and just love on him just a few moments. Come on. It's all about him. Come on. Let me hear you make some noise to him. Just just love on him. Tell him how much you love him tonight. Tell him how much you love him, how good he is to you. For the Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. We bless you tonight, Father. We bless you tonight, Father God. Just thinking about how we've gathered here tonight, and, and last night was just so rich. Thinking about out of Isaiah 60 and, you know, about the glory of the Lord resting upon us. How that he is greater in us than he that is in the world. All we have to do is show up. Because when we show up, the light comes on. I mean, it's like it drives hell back. It dr- shoves darkness back. When we just walk in the room because we carry him, he's in us. Yeah. His glory, the glory of God, the glory of God, the light and the glory of God. Darkness shall cover the earth, gross darkness the people. And the great thing about it is that darkness cannot put out that light. 
The devil is not going to take over as long as we're here. Amen. The moment that our feet leave the ground and we get to heaven, Antichrist can have his way. But not until. Not until. Somebody put your hand on yourself and say, Greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. The glory of the Lord is upon me, and his glory shall be seen upon me. Hallelujah. I'm not a second-rate person. Glory to God, I'm a son of the living God. Amen? Amen. Sons and daughters of the living God. Amen. The devil is a zero. He can never be a one. He's defeated. I said he's defeated. Jesus is Lord of all. Lord, the mighty Lord of glory, the King of all kings. Praise God. Amen. Man, I'll tell you what, man, I, I was just enriched last night, just sitting there listening, listening. I love that scripture anyway. And, uh, you know, unbeknownst to him, I was meditating. The Lord had been dealing with me about that very exact same thing. And, uh, you know, I was just like, yes, God, yes, 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 hallelujah. Because we are the light. Jesus is in us. We just need to let him shine. Amen. Let him shine. I'm so glad I know Jesus. Are you glad you know Jesus tonight? Give him some praise then. Let's give him another praise tonight. Amen. Amen. You may be seated if the ushers will come. Thank you so much for your generous giving last night. And uh, we know how to give. We know how to take care of God's men and women when they come through these doors. Uh, Roberts did not ask for a certain amount. And if he, if he had, we, he would not be sitting here speaking tonight. It's just, just the way we are. That's just how we handle it. And when they don't, they always just, you know, well, they get more because when they ask, they don't get anything because they're going to get to come and speak. <laughs> I believe in trust in God. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. I believe you're going to outdo yourself tonight, and I thank you so much. So into this ministry, Robert Slayer and ministry, so into it generously tonight. And I promise you every penny will go because that's just the way we roll, and that's how we do things here. Amen. And the saints said. That's right. Amen. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> I was sitting thinking because, you know, you get some people that want their water a certain temperature and want this and they want that. And, and uh, so that Robert's secretary, she sent me a thing and said, Robert's would like to have some mashed potatoes and some chicken noodle soup. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> then come to find out he was in the hospital last week and uh, was dealing with some issues. And so uh, today he had some solid stuff. Amen. Some solid stuff. So we're going to get some solid stuff tonight. Somebody say amen. So let's give him a welcome as he comes tonight. Let him know how much you love him. Come on, Brother Roberts. Amen. Give God a thank offering for him. Thank you. Thank you. Very much. Thank you very much. God bless you. You may be seated. Amen. Yeah, last week, uh, last Sunday, I was in Mobile, Alabama. And first time I was at this church, I've been wanting to go there for a while. Finally got the invitation, got to go, got up and got dressed, kind of felt kind of funny, and sat in the pastor's office. I said, Pastor, I know it's my first time, but I need to go back to my room. I'm not feeling good. Because I'm diabetic, and so I'm almost out of the diabetic zone. So I've, I've come down, got me off two of my medicines. I'm down until just the low. So they changed it, so I thought maybe I'm having a reaction. 
So I laid down. It's really embarrassing when you go someplace to preach for the first time. Like, I'm sorry, your guest speaker is now sick. And so so I, then I felt pressure on my chest. I thought, I'm 57. You don't do So I said, give me the hospital. So first when I walked in, you have a blockage in your bowel. We must do surgery now. I thought, oh, great. Praise the Lord. And so when they did the test, no, no blockage. Hallelujah. Either God fixed it or I never had it. I don't know about that. So, uh, so what they found was that the, I had a low-grade infection somewhere in my intestine stomach area that I didn't know I had. And it mixed with that medicine change and it went bam. And it made my insides bad for about two days. So um, I ate my first solid meal in like five days. So I'm very happy. So um, maybe I can have one tomorrow too. Praise the Lord. So, you know, praise God. Amen. Thank God for doctors. Uh, There's some things I can get fixed by my faith. There's some things I'm not there yet. So I need a pill and a shot. But I'm working as long as we don't depend on the doctors as our final authority. You know, we're going to pray about some things about that tonight because the Lord's had me wanted to help people break medical word curses off of people. We're going to do that tonight. Uh, and I'm going to explain that because we're not mad at doctors and nurses, but sometimes they think they're the final statement. And sometimes we do too. And we let their statement be the final one. I think it's one we should listen to. We should ask questions about it, understand. But God is the final statement over all of our situations. Amen. So we're going to have some fun tonight. Amen. It is Saturday night. It's when the world parties and there's nothing to do in this town. So you're in the most hip place right now in town. So we'll just have a good time tonight. All right. So uh, we're very good. Uh, I've written 98 books. We're going to talk about a few of them. We had a great book signing today. I had, I had a, an experience I'd not had. I got to go to a donut truck out back. Everybody know the donut? Where's the donut guy here? Yeah, there you are. All right. There's a, my Baptist donut friend over here. Okay. And so they made me some donuts. So that was fun. And then they had a 29-pound cake show up. Yeah. Why aren't you all like Santa Claus? The way you eat around here, you should all be this big. You know, it's, it's a 29-pound cake. Three layers. It was very good, by the way. So um, it was very good. So I had a great time. I like book signings because when you're an author, you like signing books for people. But the thing I like, you get to talk to folks. You know, it's like you can just sit down and talk to folks and, you know, they can chit-chat. Because when you're in church and things, your things are moving, you're going. But in a book, so you can just be there all day long, have a good time. And plus, you have a bookstore, a Christian bookstore. Praise God for that. So please go there and buy your Christian books and tell friends about it. When I first started writing books when I was 17 years old, I was 17 when I wrote my first book I sold in the first year, a million and a half copies of my first book. So I went from this little high school boy that no one knew, and the next day everybody knew you. And I was making more money than my mom was. She was our breadwinner. So when you obey the Lord, he does bless you. Please take the blessing and enjoy it. Amen? And uh, so it, it was it's exciting to, to, to do that. In those days, there was around 14,000 Christian bookstores in America. And they used to have big conventions with all the bookstores and all those things. And it's called Christian Bookstores Association. It was a big deal. And it was fun. I used to go there and autograph books there. I was the youngest little author running around in, the, in that, that thing. Today, there's less than 1,400 in America. And so because the, the industry's changing, so I'm not against progression, but I miss my bookstores. I still, maybe I'm old, so I still like to touch stuff. Especially when I buy a Bible, I want to touch and make sure it works the right way. And so, so you got a Christian bookstore here. So make sure you're excited about it and tell people about it and tell the Baptist to come and get some spirit-filled books. 
all right? So I was excited. Like, there were some great books that I hadn't seen. So I'm going to pick on my Baptist friend here tonight. He was one of my donut guys. So um, a book I wrote just recently, this is, actually, this is my latest book, How to Phone the Timings of God. I wrote this because I find that most people are late uh, to the, what God is doing. There's a, three timings I think you should be aware of. Number one, your personal timing. Are you in the time of God for your own life? Are, are you where you belong? Are you in the right season, the right timing? If not, then ask the Lord to help you speed up or slow down because you could either be too fast. That's normally not the problem, but there are a few folks that are too fast. Most of us are slow. We're in the revival that God has saved and we just stayed there. And, and it's great that you got saved in the move of God, but then that move is over and you got to keep going. So you got to know the timing of God for your life, not for the whole herd, for you. All right. Number two, the time of God in the church that you attend, because it may be different than the time where you're at personally. So you have to be aware, what is God doing in the church that I call my church home? And do you understand their timing and the timing of their of the vision that they have for the community, for the state? Do you understand the timing of God for your church? That way you won't be grumpy when they have to spend money or, or have to change how things are going on because the hardest thing to do in a church is like the federal government. You start a program, you can't shut it down or change it because the man that runs it gets mad. Thank you for the one amen on this side of the room. So, so, this side, so let me just talk about it. There are things that God does in a season and maybe God chooses you and a few to, to do it or to run it. You have to realize it may come to the point that it fulfilled its purpose. It is now over. What am I going to do? You're going to find someplace else to fit. But you may not be the leader of the next place. You may just be a participant. So take your ego and crucify it and just work and function and be happy. Thank you for the no amens on that, all right? So be a part of the local church. And uh, there are seasons where you have more time to do things for the Lord than other times. And God understands that. So in probably past seasons, you had more time. And you were able to do more, and then your, your work changed, or you have some more children, so things change. But always keep some time to do something for God through your local church. Amen? If it's only once a month or twice a month, you know, but when life changes, change with it. And you say, well, I'm not, what am I supposed to do? Whatever the church needs, you do. So, well, I'm not anointed for it. There's a thing called in 1 Corinthians 12, a helping. He put helps in the church. And if you'll just walk toward it, He'll give you the grace to do it while you're supposed to do it. It may not be a long-term commitment, but he'll give you the grace to do it. Thank you. This lady's going to get some money tonight. She's amen to me really good. That's her call. So just learn how to fit and function and, and, and do things. Because in your local, the church I go to, I'm not there a lot. But what I am, I found I can function as an usher. So when I go to my church, I pass the, the envelopes and the buckets. I catch people. Do all, I know how to do that. And if I'm gone, it don't fall apart. So I know how to fit in my local church. It freaks people out when they come to my church. They see me working like, what am I supposed to do? Look important on the front row and glow? I'm supposed to help in my local church. No, they, they love me, honor me, but my job is to help my local church the best I can. Amen. And the third thing is, what is God doing in the earth? What's the time of the season of God's move on the planet, in our generation? Because some people are stuck in the 70s. Some people are stuck in the 80s. And those were great times. I like them all. But they're over. You know, that doesn't mean you throw out what you learned. That doesn't mean you get rid of the memories you have. 
That doesn't mean that you disregard it. You take it with you as you go forward. Immaturity throws it off as I want something new. Maturity just puts it on your back and adds it to you to keep right on going. That's how you keep moving in the moves of God. So the timings of God are important that you understand and, and, and that you can tell time. And so I wrote a book about that, and I hope you'll, you'll get it and be able to, to do that. And then I have CDs back there. Uh, how many speak in tongues? Our Baptist friend's going to get that soon in Jesus' name. And uh, I want to pick on you all night, brother. So I have a, a teacher, tongues and their diversity. Most people say the same thing for 25 years. Shimmy, shimmy, shoot. And, you know, and, and in the church world, we go, well, that's precious. No, it's ridiculous. If your child naturally kept going, mama, dad, dad, and they're 25 years old, you take them to the hospital and say, fix them. So in the church, your prayer language needs to grow, like your English and Spanish grows. And so the same way you had your first utterance in tongues is the way your tongues grows. You hear it and you speak it, amen? And so here's the grandma rule. You pray loud enough for your own ears to hear your voice. You pray like you talk to everybody else. Because grandma used to say, if I can't hear it, I doubt if God can hear it. Now, that's grandma, that's not Bible. So there's Bible in my life and there's grandma. They kind of go together in my life, okay? Grandma said, if I can't hear it, I doubt if God can hear it. Well, I, I, I get it now, what she was trying to do. When you pray that kind of uh, loud, it begins to remove shame and some of that stuff out of your life. We're not in a yelling contest. Now, if you want to yell sometimes, God doesn't mind. Your neighbor might, but God won't. Your dog might run her off for a while, but that's okay. So, amen. So, you'll enjoy that. And the diversity of tongues. What is diversity of tongues? Tongues for different things. There are times in your life you're going through, say, a crisis. And a certain utterance may come only once or twice in your life. But that's the prayer language that helps you capture the victory in that situation. Amen. Tongues and English go together. One should not be dominant over the other. They should be equal. Paul said, we, do, we pray in our understanding and in the spirit. So we do both. Amen. So you'll enjoy that. And then here's a general's book called The Roaring Reformers. If these guys wouldn't obey you, wouldn't be sitting here today. People like John Knox, Martin Luther, John Whitecliffe, John Huss, uh, George Fox. You've heard of the Quakers? Yes. I like George Fox. He has a big Quaker hat, you know. Yeah. You know, we have the Quaker oatmeal in the store, the little Quaker William Pitt with a little hat. Well, these guys got their name because they quaked when the power of God came on them. And they had a split, and the split was called the Shakers. She had the Quakers and the Shakers. Isn't that a great name? And what they would do, the Quakers, now Richard Nixon, President Nixon, was a Quaker. I wish he had shook a little bit more and got some stuff out of them. He would have had a problem, you know. But the Quakers, back in those days, many churches had male-female split. The women sit on one side. I don't know. That's what they did. And so, and they would sit. They, they had the discipline of knowing how to wait upon the presence of God. They would come and they would wait on the Lord. They, they might sing a little bit. They just sit quietly and wait. And the power of God would descend upon them eventually. And they'd start quaking. And that's kind of how the name got upon them. Now, George Fox was the founder of the Quakers. He was one of the revolutionaries. And... <laughs> He would go in, he was British, he would go into a church and stand up when the preacher got to preach it and said, you're not a pastor. Because back then they were picking ministry uh, as a career choice, like you'd be a lawyer, doctor, and preacher. And he said, unless God called you, 
you're not a preacher. And he would go challenge them. I, mean, I don't suggest you do this, but that's what he did. They would throw him out of the church and he'd get back up and go back in like Paul would. And, and, he'd just, you know, <laughs> and so that's how that revival started. He, he began to challenge the professionalism that took away the, the supernatural and the divinity of the call. And so I love these guys. I would be a Quaker and shake with them if I was alive. Amen. So you can enjoy all these, these great people. You know, I like John Knox. You ever heard of John Knox, the great Scottish reformer? He prayed for 13 years. Give me Scotland lest I die. In other words, revive this nation or I'm going to die in the process of trying to get it done. I'm not giving up. He prayed for 13 years and got it. And Queen Mary of the Scots is recorded saying that she is more afraid of John Knox's preaching and praying than she is of the armies of England and France that may invade her at any time. If you ever go to Scotland, you can stand in John Knox's house and look out the window in the front door and see the palace where the queen was. And when she'd make a law that wasn't scriptural, he would go down, because in those days you'd go talk to him. And you go down and he'd wait his turn in line and then go tell the queen, now you change this. This law is not right. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell all of your subjects and God's people not to obey you. She, we need that to go to the White House. We need that to go to the governor's house and the school boards and all these things. You know, and so she would change the laws or she'd get mad and he'd get up and... And so may God give us a reforming spirit. We're called Protestants because we got the name because we protested. The problem is we quit protesting. We don't protest sin. We don't protest the darkness, social ills. We just want to accommodate. No, we protest. Amen. Open your Bibles if you do have them or turn your phones on to Acts, the 28th chapter, which is the last chapter in the book of Acts tonight. Tonight I'm going to be a revival historian and tell you some stories. Is that all right? And I'm going to talk about a period of history that uh, we may not know a lot about in our evangelical full gospel churches, okay? We're going to know uh, the name that I'm going to focus on in a minute, but we're going to start here. Revival history is something to inspire us to believe for God to do something greater in our time. If your past is better than your present, you are backslidden. Write that down. If your past is more vibrant and alive and stuff than your present, then you are backslidden. If your church's past is that way, the whole church is backslidden. If your denomination or your ministerial network is past is greater than its present, then the whole bunch of you are backslidden. I have to say some of our denominations are really backslidden. Hey, Lord, help this crowd to say amen. Raise the dead. Praise the Lord. All right. So we, we, we want to stay alive. Amen. And we want to do so. History to me is not that we think it was better back then. There are things that God did that were amazing and that were overwhelmingly beautiful and phenomenal. But that is to tell us that if he could do that then, he can do it now and do something greater in our lifetime, all right? So it also shows us what God can do when he finds a person or a couple or a people he can work with. Everybody great has done something stupid. Write that down. So let's go ahead and fix this right now. So... There's hope for you and your children, all right? Everybody that God has used, when I've read their stories, I don't care who they are, you, you start really like, oh, no, don't do that. Ah, they did it. You know, and some of it was really bad. Some of them had moral misconducts. They did the money thing, gotten false doctrines. And, I mean, 
the, the things that they do are kind of the same. You know, it's the same dumb trip that the devil puts on people. And so everybody great has done something stupid or they've sinned, all right? Let's just call it, they've sinned. And God gives you a second chance. He'll give you a, a lot of chances. My advice is don't use them all. All right, now, God can hang with you through all your weirdnesses. Humans cannot. And if you're in the people business, you, you, about two or three times you do something, you've lost the people, okay? Christian people will give you a second chance, most of them. And then there are small person will give you a third chance. After that, I don't know. Now, this is not God. These are people, all right? So just my advice is don't use all those chances. They're available. Don't use them all, amen? When you make a mistake, repent, learn, and don't repeat. Say, don't repeat. Just don't repeat it, okay? Just learn from it and go on. Like Catherine Kuhlman, my favorite that I got to meet when I was a little boy, she, she messed up and married the wrong person. One of the biggest things modern generals do that's a mistake is they marry the wrong person. Please slow down and make sure that who you're dating is with the right person. Don't have too many kissing sessions because about the third one, you go blind, deaf, you can't hear God, you can't hear mom, you can't hear the pastor, and you wake up after the honeymoon a year later like, what did I do? You were deaf and blind for a couple years. All right, so if you can slow down and make sure. I, uh, I was asked to perform a wedding and and I don't do that that too often because I don't pastor, but I will do it for some of my friends. And so there was uh, the daughter of one of my friends said, uh, this is a real good first marriage. I said, excuse me? So I didn't marry her because I'm not marrying you for the first and you're going to have a second. So everybody gets divorced. I said, not Christians. That's a, that should not be our intention from day one. This is a good first marriage. You know what I mean? It does happen. We don't like it. And you can recover from it. But Miss Coleman married the wrong person. This little dipstick. Came to her church in Colorado when she was pastor as a young lady, and he was still married, and she didn't know, and, so, and he started dating her. She didn't know. And so he was divorcing his wife. He had, I think, three kids by his first wife. Burroughs Waltrip was his name. And um, when she found out, she was a furious, you know, because she was an honest woman. She was a pure lady, and she was a really good woman of God. Even when she was young, she was just naive. And uh, so he, he gave her this line and she bought it. He said, I never loved, the, me and my wife never loved each other, so God didn't receive this as a real marriage because it wasn't really a love marriage. But they had three kids, yeah. And she bought it. it went ahead, he divorced, they dated and got married. People from all over the country called Catherine. Some drove out to her church. Don't do this. Don't do this. But I think they've been kissing. And she couldn't hear. Got married. She fainted during her wedding ceremony. I wish it wouldn't God knock her out, but that wasn't what happened. She fainted during the wedding ceremony, came up and still married. You know, I do. And did all the marriage thing, the cake and the meal and all that you do at your wedding. And she gets in the car now, Mr. and Mrs. and her friends in the back that were part of the wedding, all dressed up, and they go to the hotel to change their clothes. Before he could turn, her husband could turn the car off, she jumped out of the car and ran to her friend's room crying, I've made a mistake. She knew within six hours she made a mistake. Six hours. 
she knew she made a mistake and lived about eight years in the most terrible time. She lost everything. The ch they both lost their, their churches, their reputations, their ministry, everything, and then moved to California. Why do people that get in trouble move to California? <laughs> I have an answer. I pastored there for 20 years, so I kind of know. When I, I had a church of about 2,000 people, so I'd get up and, because you know, California people come for, to visit and do things, and from the world, they come around to L.A. and stuff, so you'd get out and you'd say, oh, there's so-and-so. Then I got nervous because when people moved to California, I thought, what did you do? Go home and fix it and then come back if you're supposed to. The reason why people move to like Chicago, New York, L.A., the, the liberal territories is because in a liberal dominant atmosphere, there is not the same structure of right and wrong that you find in a conservative culture. So if you live in a conservative culture like here, nobody may say nothing to you, but the atmosphere alone challenges that which is not right in you because of the structure. In a liberal atmosphere, it says you can do what you want to do as long as you don't hurt me. So you, you can live longer in your weirdness in liberals. And they move to those places many times until it gets so bad they wake up and have to go back home and realize <laughs> I'm wrong. And she walked to a dead-end street in California. She tells the story. On the worst day of her life, she knew her marriage was over. She tried, she tried, she tried. It did not work. Her husband, her ex-husband would become, he would become her ex-husband, would die in a California prison from stealing money from old women by conning them out of their money. That's how her ex-husband died. So it'll show you what kind of character he was. And so she goes to a dead-end street in California. She said, I had nothing. I had nothing at all to give him. On that very day, I know the hour, I know the spot where Catherine Kuhlman died. You know how she talks. I died. I looked up and said, Jesus, I have nothing. All that I have is I love you with all my heart. If you could use me, would you please use me? In that moment, he gave her the ministry that you and I talk about today. That was her second chance. What a second chance. And he'll do that for you too. He'll give you that. He gives you a great second chance. God's nice. He loves you. He wants to help you. You know, it's, it's great. So for, for me, the Catherine Kuhlman story is not just the miracle lady that, of course, she really is. But to me, no, it's the God of a second chance. And when I see all of her ministry and what she was, that's, the second, that's why she says it's so precious to her because he didn't have to do that. And when he gave it to her, he didn't even, she didn't even know what it was. It took her 10 years to get back into her high calling. The church almost killed her. Because they used, back in those days, divorce was the unpartable sin tradition. In the, because they didn't know how to process that. It's not God's will for somebody to divorce, but it happens. It happened in the scripture. And so the church usually kills you before they figure out how to fix you or how to restore you, especially Pentecostals. I was talking to the pastors. I said, could we please be like the Lutherans and the Methodists when they see something going on in culture? They'll call their bishops together and say, hey, this is happening. Let's go study it and study the word, and let's try to find a proactive way to help these people. 
Pentecostals are like this. It shows up, thou art judging, you shall go to hell, bam. And, and then after they kill you, they think, well, well let's talk about it. Can, can, we, can we do that first so we don't kill the poor people? You know, we just need to make that adjustment among our spirit-filled people. That's the way we, that's how we come up with answers after we've killed the first hundred of them. Like I talked last night, don't kill those folks. And we're going to have to pray, Lord, how do we answer these people? How do we serve these people? We're going to have to ask God for help. We may have to get together and pray together. As leaders, like, I don't know, because there are things come that we don't know how to fix, but God has an answer for every people group in the world. Amen? Did you enjoy my little talk? All right, let's try another talk. Acts chapter 28. We have, uh, the book of Acts is the incomplete story of the early church. Why do you call it incomplete? Because we don't have what happened to Matthew in this book. What happened to St. John? We don't have what happened to Thomas or Mother Mary. We don't have all the storyline, but we have mainly in the book of Acts, it's about Peter and Paul and the early church. And the book of Acts ends like this. In Acts 28, verse 20, verse 30 and 31 says, Paul dwelt two old years in his own hired house and received everyone that came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding or stopping him. And the book of Acts just stops. It is at the end. This may be the only book that is still being written today. All right? Now, we're probably on some billionth chapter now, though. All right? We're on Acts 2 billion and 2. All right? But we leave the book of Acts in its canonization, and we move into what we call church history. So church history is really the continuation of the story of God working with mankind throughout the ages. Church history mainly has been taught by dead professors that have very little faith and very little power and they don't know how to tell a story. That's why you don't like it. Amen? You cannot tell American history, world history, and God history and not know how to tell a story. Please shut up and sit down if you can't tell a story because you're going to kill everybody who wants to understand they're going to get bored and hate history because of you. Amen? Thank God I had good history professors in some of my classes. So we, we, we stop here, but it continues. The 12 apostles that Christ picked, the last one to die was St. John. He was the youngest. He was 90, in his early 90s, some historians say, when he died. He was on the Isle of Patmos. You know what happened to him on Patmos? It was like a, a prison island, I'll call it that. And he got the book of Revelation that we're all still trying to figure out. When I get to heaven, I want him to teach the book. And let's see how weird we were with his book while we're down here trying to interpret all of it. Like, brother, we really missed that chapter. Amen? St. John, there came a new governor, and he wanted to make the citizens free like him. So he let a lot of the prisoners free. One of them was St. John. St. John got off the Isle of Patmos, and he started being a part of the Christian community. Now think like this. If we were part of that time period, we'd gather together in our Christian gatherings and in the crowd, there'd be St. John. What would you do if you were the pastor and the last living apostle, the lamb, is sitting in your crowd? I think you should shut up 
sit down, let him speak, or just sit there and glow at us for a while. But that's what it was like in those days. The people that Christ had healed or raised from the dead were in these gatherings. Can you imagine going and there's Lazarus. I was dead, but I'm alive. You can still tell it. And he would go around to the Christian world. And that's what that, that was in the services. The shepherds that followed Christ. There's stories about one of the shepherds that would be in the Christian services. And I was there when the angels announced it. Think of being with those guys. That's what it's like in those days. And so history records the great story. The message they preached was a John 3.16 message. That God so loved us. He likes us. He loves us. That he sent his only son. He didn't have twins. He had one. Realize he had only one. His only son. He was willing to give. That if you believe on him, you'll not die but have everlasting life. And God confirmed the preaching of the apostles and the early church by three things. Signs, wonders, and miracles. So when you preached the message of Christ to prove that he was alive and that what you said was correct, he performed healing miracles, delivering miracles, signs, wonders, and miracles. And that's one reason why the gospel spread so rapidly in an anti-Roman environment and why they did not give up their faith in the face of death and being slaughtered by the gladiators in the big, the big arenas of the Roman Empire. They held to their faith. A man would see his wife killed. A parent would see the kids killed. The kids would see their dad die. That's what was happening. Orphans was a huge problem in the early church because last night mom and dad was killed and now the three kids had to be taken care of. This was the way it was. They were not born just in the glorious meetings. They lived in the reality that at any moment they could lose their life and their children could be left as orphans. So the young pastors like Timothy had to deal with widows, with orphans, with the sadness of having an announcement so-and-so was arrested and they were killed last night in the theater. But they kept going. And the message continued to spread and became the dominance in the Roman Empire. That which was uh, what they killed now became the national religion hundreds of years later, which was a good day and a bad day because when it became the national religion, people joined it for status, for position. They mentally agreed without having the heart conversion and we began the conflict of that world. And so it continued and, and the message go, but then something happened. Men begin to change the message. When they begin to be concerned about buildings, their hat, their robe, their ring, structure, begin to overtake. They'd be more concerned about the robe than the armor and the cloak of anointing. And so all of a sudden, people quit coming because the message was not right and there was no supernatural happening. And so signs and wonders were replaced with three things we deal with today. Tradition, ceremony, and ritual. Took the place of signs, wonders, and miracles. And the message of, of a loving God changed to an angry God. God's gonna get you, you dirty, rotten sinner, you. That's where that came from. And for over a thousand some years, the message and the imagery of God changed from a kind Savior, 
a kind father to an angry schizophrenic God that he may like you today but kill you tomorrow. Now, why did the people, why didn't they rise up and, and say, no, they had no Bibles. There was no printing presses. There was no translations of the scriptures. So they trusted the priest, the man behind the pulpit. One of the most sacred things in ministry is the trust from the pew to the pulpit. That what happens in this thing that I'm doing right now has to be for Christ's sake and for your sake. Not for my ego to be a, a star or to be a, a popular personality or to milk you for your money. But we come here to be encouraged, to learn about Christ and, and, and to have this divine, beautiful trust. And so for hundreds of years, they trusted and they begin not to teach the story of Christ correctly. But they didn't have a book. And they trusted. So they would tell things to the people and the people would believe they believed that God was angry. And every once in a while, a little priest you do would actually read the scriptures. It's amazing what happens when you read the Bible. Now, they did have handwritten. There were monks who spent their whole life writing the book of Mark, writing some book of the Bible, and that was their ministry. They would live in the caves or in the monasteries, and their whole job was to sit there and write it out on animal skin or some type of uh, writing thing they had back then so that there was some record of the, the letters and the stories in the Bible. Books in those days were so precious that they would put chains on them and bind them to the, to the, uh, to the shelf so you couldn't take them out. Royalty and rich people had access to them. Most people did not because they could not read. They, was not, they were not literate. They knew how to read the time by the movement of the sun. They knew weather and they knew seasons because they were farmers. They were agricultural people. And they would go to church. And in Europe, they would build the church in the middle of the town and the town around it. So when you go to Europe, you'd find the churches in the center part of town because it was the center of their lifestyle. When the church dominated the world, they were in the dark ages and they were supposed to be the children of the light. Just think about that for a moment. The church dominated. You could not become king. You could not become governor without the Pope's permission, those things. And when that Catholic church, that era of Christians were there, there was a thing called the dark ages. And like, you're supposed to be the light. What happened? Because it wasn't Christ. It wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was a demonic religious devil that took over these institutions. And a little guy would be reading the early church fathers or read scriptures that they had access to in the seminaries, as we call them today. And they would wake up and go, oh, there's a problem. And they'd kill him. It's amazing how many Christians were killed by Christian leaders. That should be a book of martyrs. The church, the people whom the church killed. It's quite a few. In 1200, there was a man named John Wycliffe. They called him the morning star, the first break in the darkness. He actually died a natural death, which is very unusual back then. They kicked him out of the church because he kept saying, I think there's a problem. I think there's a problem, and here's what the problem is. And they kicked him out. So he goes into the British forest and starts what we call a Bible school. And the little priests that like it would come into the forest where he teach, and they go back into the villages and teach. And so he began to write it and teach. And, and the powers that they got mad at John Wycliffe. 
He died a natural death, which is a miracle of God. But here's what's funny. 44 years after he was dead, they dug him up. They were still so angry at the guy that what he preached and did was still echoing because the eternal word will continue. The messenger may die, but that which he preaches will keep going and going and going. And they thought since he's dead, his message would die, but it kept going. And they got so bad, they said, dig him up. They dug, when you've been dead for 44 years, there's not much left, a little bit of hair and bones and teeth. So they dug up his skeleton is what they did, and they crushed it and burned it into ashes. So there'd be no remains of John Whitecliffe and threw him in a river. Problem was, the river went to the ocean that went around the world. It's one of the great historical things, like they tried to get rid of him, and then it's like, you threw him in the wrong river. Would anybody care 44 years after you're dead that you were alive? Some of you, you'll be dead four days and they will forget you. Four weeks, four months. So I'd ask you, please live a life that's so radical that they're still fussing after you're dead. Amen. Amen. Live radical faith. Live bold. Live strong for Christ to the point where I can't believe he did that and you've been dead for 25 years and they're still fussing that you built the church, you put the big sign up, you took over the school, whatever you did. You only live once, so do it good. Amen. So, you know, quit tiptoeing through the earth and stomp through the earth and I know that you're here. And this was what we call the morning of the guy that goes, bam. Well, it, it didn't go far. And then you go a little bit further. There's a man named John Huss in Czechoslovakia, Hussites. Bethlehem Chapel in, in, in Prague, still standing. I've been there. He became a mega church pastor, we call it today. The reason why they liked him, the people, the common guy liked him, because he actually used the common language to preach and teach and read the scriptures. Because when you went to church back then, when they would read the Bible, listen to this, listen to this one. I'm going to slap them even out. They would read the scriptures in the dead language of Latin. So they don't have a Bible. So when you do read the scriptures, you couldn't hear it in your own language. They would change from Czech or English or Spanish into the dead language, which no one speaks it. No, that's why it's called dead. The dead language of Latin. What kind of stupidity is that? That's a devil making sure you never hear the eternal living word of God because he knows even one verse can change your life. And they would, so you'd go to church, you didn't have nice chairs, you'd probably have to stand in those cathedrals and those things and places like that. They didn't have, unless you're really rich, then you could buy your chair. Peasants had to sit and stand in the cement kind of thing or on the stones. And, and they, would, they would do that. Now, the reason why they had stained glass back then, all right, let me bring a little bit more. They would do that because people could see the story of Christ because they couldn't read it. So all the icons of the ancient pictures and this thing was all from the right heart. But then as time passes, we made them sacred. We put the wrong kind of attitude to them to where it's disgusting to us today. But the concept of why they did it was the people could not read. They didn't have a Bible. So they have pictures that help illustrate things for the people. So it was good in its beginning. Like with most Christian things, you're not careful. It gets going a little bit, and then it gets weird, and then it gets stupid, and then it gets ridiculous. Even among us Pentecostals. 
We usually just fall under the power without a catcher. Now we fall professionally. And we have little cloth ladies that take care of us and the whole bit. It's amazing. When you're in John Wesley's meetings and George Whitfield meetings, in grandma's meetings, you just fell. If you got hurt, what you get for being the flesh? That's how they talked about it, you know. You're, you're a church of God, you should understand that. You know, if you fall in the spirit, you don't get hurt. Well, it's really true. If you're in the spirit, you just wake up on the floor and don't know how you got there. If you're in the flesh, oh my God, I got a pain here and this. It's what you get for falling in the flesh. You won't do that next time. Such compassionate saints of the Lord. That's why we have catchers because people begin to sue the church. Back in the 60s in these time period, the suing thing got going. So the churches had to figure out a way to find the flesh folks, put them on the floor so they didn't. Does that make sense? In my church, I put extra cushion up here. So if my usher didn't get there, at least there was three inches that could help you. That's good advice for future church building. It's not for the folks in the spirit, it's the folks in the flesh. They all thought they were, oh, I feel the spirit. No, it's my extra cushion underneath your feet. It's not, it's not the glory cloud. It's the cushion I put up there for my carnal saints that are going to fall and want to sue me later. So you, when you say all this, it's funny, but it's true. So John Huss gets put on trial because back then, if you didn't believe exactly the way the Catholic Church believed, they could put you on trial as a heretic and kill you, or they believed if they excommunicated you, you would not go to heaven. And people believed it because they did not have a Bible and the priest did not preach the word. They preached whatever. For example, they would say, when it thunders and lightnings outside, that's God's anger against you. Well, they believed it. So, oh, God's mad at me. And so God's always pissed off. Can I say it that way? He's always mad, according to these people. No wonder these people don't want to go to church. And, you know, and then today there's still an attitude about God that God's always mad. And so when he's portrayed in cartoons or a movie, it's a deep, thundering, lightning voice. That's where that comes from. From that time period when it changed from a loving God to the religious spirit that made him an angry God that's going to get you because you're a dirty, rotten sinner and you deserve to be spanked and killed and harmed. And that's the way they talked about it. And because they had no Bible and not enough honest priest, that's what they believed. So John Huss got excommunicated and they burned him alive. Now here's the fun part of John Huss's life. On the way to his burning, to his death, he's heard singing the Psalms as he's going and is on his way to his burning. He prophesies. A hundred years from now, and I'm gonna paraphrase what he said, there'll come a man that you'll not be able to kill. He says it in a metaphor is what he does, but that's what he's saying. And they burn him alive. And he dies. A hundred years from that prophecy in Germany. A young German was trying to get home and got caught in a very violent thunderstorm. Now, remember I just told you, God's marriage might kill you. And a lightning bolt hit the ground not far from this young man and knocked him to the ground. He thought God was about to kill him. 
And he cried out to who? Does anybody know? You want to know who I'm talking about yet? It's Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King. It's where Martin Luther King got his name. We'll come back to that day. You have to explain this to the young people because they only think Martin Luther King is the only Martin Luther in the world. But that's not quite true. But isn't it nice to know where Martin Luther King got his name? No wonder he did what he did. The name alone says, I got to do something. You just can't sit there and be a nice guy in Georgia. You got to do something. And so Martin Luther is in law school. And because in those days, they didn't have Obamacare. All right? They did not have a social platform or a, a health platform. So you hope that one of your children would make it good enough economically that when you're old, you don't ever old, they could take care of you. And so Martin was the one that they sent to law school believing to be that person in the family. So when he got hit, that lightning bolt hit the ground and knocked him to the earth. He really thought God was about to kill him. And he cried out, not to Jesus, but to St. Anne, which was Mary's mother. Now watch this. St. Anne, I'll be a preacher. Don't have, tell God, I don't, don't kill me. You'd think you'd go straight to the head dude. But the saints were preached so much, so this is what had to happen. St. Anne had to hear Luther, and then she ran to Mary. Mary ran to Jesus and just told the Father, Luther says yes. That's really what they're saying. I know it sounds fun the way I'm telling it, but that's really what was going on in the way they believed. St. Anne, help me. She can't even hear you. And Mary is exhausted. She's been bombarded so long, she says, quit praying to me. I can't do nothing. Talk to my son. You know, they have these merry uh, appearances, most of them just religious demons. I heard about one that told, <laughs> that Mary said, quit praying to me, pray to my son. I thought, that might be the real one. <laughs> that, might be, that might be the real Mary. That's the only time I thought, that may be her talking because it's actually scriptural there. And so he leaves law school and he goes to, we call Bible school or seminary. He goes to the monastery. Now, Martin Luther was an honest man. He was a very smart man intellectually. He, he was an honest man. Most people back there are more honest than we are today. Okay? And so his dad got mad because he lost to Obamacare. Not going to happen here, okay? You're going to find somebody else. When Martin does his first communion, he is so nervous, his dad attends, and Martin spills the communion wine on the floor, and his dad attacks him. He can't even do communion right. Still angry. Now, why was there such an upheaval about him spilling the wine on the floor? Because back then they believed that when you took it, it turned into actual blood. And when you ate the bread, it would turn to the actual flesh of Christ. And so when you spilt the wine, you're spilling the precious blood of Jesus. So Martin was so nervous about holding these holy sacraments with that mindset that he was so nervous in his first one that he spilt the juice and his dad used it against him. Martin had a problem in his heart. He wanted God and him to be friends. And he wanted to find peace with God. Can, can we just get along? How 
do I make you happy enough just to like me? And I'm, I'm simplifying the story, but that's what it is. He, he's, he's not trying to be the big guy. He's not trying to earn a popeship. He's not trying to, he's just, how can God and I be friends? Is there, and he didn't like it because God didn't make a way. He writes in his journal, you can see it today, I hate God. One of our greatest modern Christian guys actually writes, I hate God. Why did he hate God? Because he couldn't find a path to make God be his friend or to, to get the hostilities between him and God gone. He did what he was told to do. Back in those days, you were Catholic, anybody ex-Catholic here? You, you, you had to go to a confessional. Thank God I'm not a Catholic priest because I don't want to hear your crap. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know it. I want to know after you got forgiven, I want to meet you then. That's when we have a great time. He's like, I could not be a Catholic priest and sit in the little booth and hear all your stuff because I say, oh, please, go someplace else. I, I just couldn't take it. But that's what they did back then. They still do it today. One of Martin Luther's confessions was over eight hours. Now, this will show you a glimpse into how he's trying to do everything he's told to do to the greatest degree. He confessed everything he did, he thought he might have done, that he might do in the future. And the little priestly dude in the booth says, he's exhausted, you know, eight hours. Just confess the big stuff. That's kind of what he says. Luther would also fast to where he would get sick. He'd beat himself on his back to get the stripes and take on the sufferings of Christ to try to find a way to appease God, to say, I really want to be your friend. I really want to be peace. I really want to work with you. I really want to have a friendship with you. He did everything he needed to do, and the, the spiritual people around him could not help him. He became their biggest problem in that monastery. So they thought, well, let's send him to Rome. Oh, Jesus. They, so they thought, well, let's send him to the holy city of Rome, and maybe while he's there, he can have an encounter. They sit him there, and remember, there's no BMWs in those days. You have to walk or ride a horse. And since you were a priest, you walked. Okay? So you walk from Germany to Rome. There are some questions that the college, the Bible school, wants the, the Vatican to answer to solve some of the issues in their school. And they sent Martin and a couple guys with him. He goes to Rome, and while he's there, he's also wanting to do something else. He wants one of his relatives that's stuck in purgatory, he wants to pop him out while he's there. That's one of the reasons why he was there. He was hoping, I think it was his dad or grandma or something, uh, one of his grandparents was stuck. He wants to pop him out. So he does all the stuff you do there. You do the 26 steps that Christ walked upon to go see Pontius Pilate. You go do all this stuff. You see Peter's bones. You see Paul's ear. You see all this stuff that's around at that time. That's what was going on. There in this time, they had all this stupid stuff going on. You know why it was going on? Because they wanted to build these cathedrals. So when you go to Europe, go see the cathedrals. They're absolutely amazing. And then kick it on the way out. Because it was built by lying to your ancestors. Go, wow, and, mm, and that's how you do it. That's what I do. Like, mm, bam. My, my poor German-English people gave all my money to you and you built this beautiful cathedral and you lied to them. Mm -hmm. I get mad now just even telling the story. And so in Europe at that time, they, 
They've got the nails of the cross that put Christ on the cross. I think there was like 18 of them running around Europe. You only need about four or five. They have splinters of the cross. They had indulgences and these kind of relics and things. And you'd go sit and pay a little money and you'd get blessed or something. And people did it. Why did they do it? Because no one told them the truth. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have your pastor. They had a dumb little preachy dude that was like, let's take the money and do what we need to do. And, and they were abusing the goodwill of the people of the pew. Never realizing it's going to backfire. And so Martin goes there and comes back worse than when he went. Move the story forward. They finally assigned him to go to a revival capital city called Wittenberg, Germany. He would become that. He went there to, and became a local pastor, or a local priest in a parish, and taught in the school. Something happened. He actually read the Bible one day. It's amazing what happens when you read the Bible. Please read your Bible. Today, the spirit that stopped him from translating it into the barbarian languages of the earth, that's how they talked about it, is the same spirit today that you have 15 Bibles in your house and don't read any of them. You have a red Bible that goes with the red dress. You have a yellow Bible that goes with the yellow dress. You have fashion Bibles. We are men. We have our cowboy Bibles, our steel Bibles. We have all of our Bibles, but never read them. That spirit that kept it from being translated is still working that now that you have them, don't read it. Just think about that. And so Luther has a revelation. Romans 1, 17. A half a verse. It's not even a whole verse. It's not even a whole verse. The just shall live by faith. That's it. That's it. He got that, bam, that download, and it's a half a verse. What could he have done if he had a whole verse or a chapter? My God, a half a verse. A light bulb goes on. I don't need all this other stuff. The relics, the indulgences, the, all these things are not required. It's believing in Jesus, what he did at Calvary. The just do not live by indulgences and penances and all the. We live by faith. Bing, boom, bow. I mean, light bulbs begin to go on inside of him. Ah, he gets free and realizes it's belief in Christ's work that restores you to the Father and the relationship. And Luther gets free himself. And when he gets free, of course, you can't contain it. It goes out. He writes down 95 things that he thinks the Catholic Church should work on. I thought, is that all? That's a lot, though, 95. Tomorrow was October 1st, right? What's the big holiday in October? All right, hear me. That's why I'm telling the story tonight because it's October. On October 31st, Halloween, Luther has written out the 95 Thesis, they call it, the 95 Things, and he walks down on October 31st and nails it to the chapel doors of the Wittenberg Church to say, now that what that meant in that time is how you would tell people, I want to discuss this. You would provoke a discussion by putting 
what you want at the door of the church because everybody went to church and they would read it. He did not know he was about to start not a revival, but a revolution. And America needs something stronger than revival. We need a reformation and a revolution. And we're going to get it. We're going to have it in our lifetime. So he nails it to the door on October 31st. We call that the birthday of the Protestant Reformation. For 250 years after this day, the Western world celebrated the 31st as a Christian modern holiday or a celebration that we got free from the bondage of the Catholic Church at that time. Now, I'm not meaning to Catholic, but it's the truth. It's the truth, okay? Thank God I'm not Catholic. If you are, I'll help you out. So I don't like that. I don't care. Come out from among them. All right. What oh, would that be? I don't know how Reformation Day, birthday, became the evil Halloween. We celebrated all over Europe. We were so excited that we found Christ personally. For over 1,000, 1,200 years, he was an angry, going to get you, mad God. And Luther came along and said, the just shall live by faith. Living by faith, believe what Christ did, and, and by faith you obtain it, by faith you have it. It's done by faith. You don't do it through money, through works, or attendance. It's by faith, believing. And people got free. And we celebrated as a Christian celebration. And on Halloween, they dress up like Batman, demons, and dead people. I think we should take it back. I think we should take it back. I think our kids still deserve their candy because I want some too. I think it's unfair that our children are deprived of certain things, but we can celebrate these things in a different way. So instead of having Halloween, let's have Reformation Day. Or Harvest Day, we used to call it, or Hallelujah Day, whatever. And just let people know. On this day, dress up like Martin and his future wife, Kate, and go get your candy. When you ring the bell, trick or treat. No, it's not true. It's hallelujah. Thank you for the amen. Because that's the birthday. But the devil tries to take everything. So, you want, to tell, you want more of the story? Because we're just getting going. We're just starting. Martin Luther nails it to the door. Now, there's an invention that happens about this time. The same way that that cell phone right there that's changed our life. Do you realize, in my lifetime, that little thing there, I can say hi to somebody in Japan having breakfast right now, and we can talk. I can see what they eat. They can see what I'm eating at my dinner. On a phone you put in your pocket. In the mountains of Virginia, you can do that. Hello, that's a crazy, I mean, you know how crazy that is? I remember when I got a fax in my office, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Anybody remember the fax machines? For the first, I could fax Africa or Europe and they get my letter and get a response for the next day instead of waiting for the snail mail, you call it. I thought, wow, look at this, a fax machine. Now there's people, I can talk to them face to face in lifetime. It's changed our lifetime. Now, the way that the phone has changed us, the internet, is the way this invention changed the world, called the printing press. Mr. Gutenberg, now, let me make a comment. The printing press is not that difficult to figure out. 
Why did it take so long to figure out movable type? Think how simple that is. 20 A's, 30 B's, all the, and you create the letters. You put ink and, and you print. It's not that difficult. Why did it take so long for humans, especially Germans, because they're always either creating or causing wars? I'm part German, I can say that. It's true, read them. Keep them making cars. They do good cars. You fly down the road real nice in a BMW. A Ford needs prayer. I have a Ford, so I'm going to joke it, all right? I miss my BMW. It glides down there. They, they're, they're good. They're good. They know how to do things. And so the printing press comes about, and they print. The first thing they print is a Bible, the Gutenberg Bible. Our nation has one of the few that are left in the Library of Congress. You ever go to D.C., go to the Library of Congress, and there's a glass case. It's worth millions. I wanted to steal it. I really can say, Lord, can you forgive me tomorrow? Because to me, it's such a precious thing. They printed not the royal speeches, the creator's words. The first thing they printed showed you how much they loved God. They really loved God. They, they had a lot of things they had to unlearn, but they loved God. But when they printed the Bible, they had to print something else. So Luther's become a controversial figure. And so he's writing because now he's mad at the Pope. He is angry. He is, he is so mad, he cusses. He, he cusses. He really does. He calls the Pope really bad names. And he says other things, and they start drawing sketches, and they're not very nice sketches. So they weren't just like, I don't agree with you. I hate your guts. You lying. I mean, he went at them. Now, let me explain why. Because I think sometimes we're 500 years from this moment. We're living in, the, in the, the beauty of what they paid for. If these guys would have obeyed, we'd still be somewhere goofy. So let's talk why he was so mad. You've been lied to. For hundreds of years, you've been stole from. That's why there's a money problem today in people with the church. It wasn't televangelist that started it. They helped it, but they didn't start it. Okay? It started back there when they realized purgatory really didn't, grandma wasn't in purgatory. That's how they got some money out of you. If you give me $500, we'll pop her out for you. And so they would do that. They believe because that's what they did. And when they begin to, I think all those people knew something's not right, but they didn't have a way to put their feet on that feeling until Luther showed up. And he began to put words to the deception, to the manipulation, and to the demonic abuse of religion. And so when you've been lied to for over a thousand years, your great, 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 great grandpa, and you wake up, and you're German? Now, if you're French, it's different. But if you're German, they get mad. They don't go, oh. <laughs> That's the French. The German, mm. So here's what would happen. They were printing Luther's sermons and Luther's writings and things. Most people could not read. Now, Germans love beer. Have you ever heard of Oktoberfest? They still like their beer. 
The Italians and the French like their wine. The English like their tea. America like their Coca-Cola. We created the Coca-Cola drink, all right? So when you finish your day's work, you go to what we call a pub, a bar. Back then, it was where you took your wife and your kids and you went down to the pub and you got something to drink and that's where you kind of met and talked with your friends, you know, even back then. And so you're all Germans. You can't read. You work on the fields. And there's, a, there's an upheaval in your country. This little fat monk has got everybody mad. The Pope's upset. Everybody's upset. Everybody's talking. But you all, the common guy likes him. And so if somebody in the pub could read, They'd all sit quietly and drink their beer and the guy would stand up on the bar or on the chair and read Luther's writings. And they're drinking that beer and he starts explaining that you live by faith and that this is wrong and this is not right and the Bible says this and you have to obey the Pope, they're lying to you. And, and the Germans don't go, oh, praise the Lord. They go, mm. And they get mad. Mm. They, What? Where's that priest at? And they go out and start burning parts of the churches, beating the priest up, and they kill a couple. I don't suggest that, but they, welcome to Germans when they get mad. They, they really go at it. And they have a, what we call a peasant revolt in history that was a part of religion and other aspects that got going. But it started with Martin Luther. And so when you've been lied to all these years, are you German? Is that why she keeps tapping you? Oh, you're French? Poor man. You're a German? All right, here's my two guys, all right? You're a French. The French people, no offense to you, but the French people are the only people that didn't accept the Reformation. And that's why there's still problems there. It's true. The, the, the Huguenots had to leave because they were going to kill them. But that's the difference. But we're glad you're here in the Pentecostal church tonight. Praise the Lord. We got a Frenchman and a, Pap, a Baptist here tonight, so praise the Lord. You enjoying the story? Yeah, All right. Yeah, yeah. So they get upset and they start reacting. Now, I, I don't like what they did, but I do understand why they did it. Because they were bound by false teachings and, and things that they knew were not right. And the trust that they had in the local parish priest they now know they were abused, they were lied to, stole from, and they were angry. And Luther was angry. And he's calling the Pope the Antichrist and the Catholic Church the harlot church. That's where it all comes from. I mean, he is raging to the point they still tell Catholic priests in training, don't read Martin Luther. True. I was in the Philippines and some of the Catholic boys that were going toward ministry snuck over to my meeting and I happened to be telling this story. And they said, can we talk to you? I thought, oh, I bet I made them mad as not to cuss and beat me up. And they go, we've been reading Luther because we're told not to. And we're 2000 something. They're still mad at Martin Luther today because the truth still sets you free. It doesn't matter when you read it or when to, it still sets you free. And so this happens now. I've done a little bit, but so when the Pope hears about Luther and the ruckus in Germany, he thinks Martin Luther is a drunk priest that's kind of on a drunk craziness. 
and makes the comment that when he's off of his drunken stupor, he'll come to his senses, all will be well. The third time, it's kind of like, kill the guy. So they want to put Martin Luther on trial, okay? Now, the only way I can relate to you how big this trial was is like the O.J. Simpson trial. How many remember the O.J. Simpson trial? All right, now, that's a big deal, wasn't it? I had my Bible school in California, and I had to tell the students, when the verdict comes in, we'll shut down the Bible college. You'll come in and watch it on TV, or they wouldn't have come to school that day. It was that big of a deal to the whole, really the whole world, but especially as in America. So I want you to relate that type of temperament and fame or popularization of that to the Martin Luther thing. It's the same kind of thing, all right? It's that same kind of big deal. Because here is a little fat monk. They had a funny haircut. They put a bowl in your head and cut your hair. It's called the bowl haircut. Thank God we got free for that haircut. So just picture the bowl haircut, kind of a pudgy little priest. And he's by himself. I mean, he's got people supporting him, but he's really alone in most of his ways. And they put him on trial. So they want to bring him to Rome, but the local German government, I'll call it, says, no, the German law says you must try him on German soil because he'd have gone to Rome, they'd have killed him. And the German folks knew it. And one of the main German leaders says, you're not going to kill my priest. So they bring the Catholic lawyers and all this in a big trial. Puts him on trial. And he sits there and they put his writings in front of him. They ask, did you write these pamphlets and these little booklets and he goes, yes, and they say, recant, take it back. The first time he's confronted that way, he does something that I found very interesting. He says, can I have 24 hours or another day to consider my answer? And I thought, he sure had that settled by now. But looking back on it, here's what was happening. He writes, he goes to his room there in the castle area, and he says he fights with the Lucifer himself. Now, first of all, when I read that, I thought, that's a pretty big demon. The top guy shows up. And I'm thinking, if I was Lucifer, I think I'd have showed up because you're about to lose hold on Western Europe that you've had a hold on for a long time. And this little guy has a half a verse. That's what he's got in his little David slingshot. The just shall live by faith. That's it. That's, that's it. That's his revelation. I have a verse. And it is so powerful that he says, Lucifer himself shows, and he fights with the devil himself and wins the battle and goes to sleep for a few hours and goes back to the court case the next day. The reason why he also wanted another day to consider because of this. If he is wrong, all the people fought him is going to go to hell with him. And his consciousness that he wanted to make sure before he made this statement, because you like him, you're with him, and he wants to be honest and for sure, for he takes this step and all of you go with him, that we're not going to go burn. We're going to go up and be in the glory, not go down and be in the fire. And he's concerned. And so he fights with Lucifer, and he goes through his consciousness again. He talks about his conscience and concludes he's right that what he's preached, what he's believed, what he's written is correct. He goes back out there and they do the same question as it was the day before. And he gives his great statement. I'm going to paraphrase it into just a couple sentences. He says, these things that I've written here that you've asked me to recant on, 
I will not recant unless you prove to me by Scripture alone. Alone. Not by popes and bishops who change their mind and contradict each other. If you prove to me that what I've written is not right by Scripture, I'll take it back. But here's how I stand. Bam! That here I stand was the statement that put a hole in that dark cloud that controlled him for over a thousand years. And the light of heaven began to come down upon the people. It made the Catholic people of that time and that prior and the, and, and the Vatican foam at the mouth in anger. How dare you say that? And here's where we get this statement in our church today. Where's that in the Bible? You ever said that? That comes from Luther's trial. Show me by scripture alone. So we're still echoing the Luther trial statement. Where's that in the Bible? And please keep saying that question. Where's that in the Bible? And no preacher that's worth his salt will be offended by that question. None whatsoever. They will, yes, sir. Here's where it's at in the scriptures. Here's this. And, and they'll talk and they'll dialogue if they're honest ministers. And if they're wrong, They'll say, you know, I'm wrong and you're right because we want to be right according to Scripture, not right because of prestige. So he leaves winning the peasantry, the common us folk who couldn't get into the castle, heard through the window and heard through the echoing coming down, Luther wins. They want to kill him, but they can't kill him because we like him. The common guy likes him. If you want to win, Win with the common people. Yes. You'll never win with the hierarchy. The common man, the common woman, the common family likes you. You can win any kind of religious or social battle in society. That's why Trump is winning. As much as you may or may not like the guy, the, the common American likes Mr. Orange Face, who does not know how to talk as a politician at all which makes him so wonderful. He's the best cartoon and the best news thing going. He's like, why watch, why watch comedy? Just turn on the news and see what did he do today? Irritate half the country. It, it was the best four years of television in my life. What did he say today? I thought, I can't believe he's calling Crooked Hillary. Like, When it's all over, your grandchildren are going to say, what was it like during the Trump era? You may hate his guts, but he's going to go down in history as one of the most unusual presidents, and we got to live in this time period. So whether you like him or not, enjoy the time because you're in it, baby. It's so much fun. I like these kind of unusual moments. So he gets on a wagon, a cart. These other little priesty friends, and they're going back toward Wittenberg. And he's in the German forest, and the German knights come looking for him. You know, the knights with all the metal and stuff on the horses. They find the wagon, and all the priests, the guys look the same, you know, with the brown robes and stuff. And they say, which one's Martin Luther? And they all say, I am, I am, I am. They all, they all kind of, because they're trying to save, because they think they're going to kill Luther. What they did not know, the knights that came, came from the governor that liked him. They said, go get my priest. We're going to protect him. So the knights run out to get him. They find eventually Luther. He says, I'm Martin Luther. They grab him, put a sack over him, and put him on a horse and run off. 
and his friends think that's the last time they're going to see him. They put him in a castle. They change his name from Martin to George. I have no idea why they call him George. That does not sound like a good German name, you know, George. But they call him George. He grows a beard, tries to change it, and he's feeding the ducks and the chickens, and he's doing stuff around the castle like that. And this is a brilliant mind, a big spirit feeding chickens. And, and then they do that to protect him so they don't kill him. But then he gets what we call a down, he gets an aha moment. Hey, I'm stuck here. Let's make this work. I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something really big. I'm going to translate the Bible into the common German language. So he calls for all of his books to be secretly brought to him. And in the castle while he's in exile, he translates the Bible for the first time into the German language so that the German people themselves can read it. When they learn to read, they can read it. And when the Pope hears about this, he almost has a triple bypass. He cannot believe that you're taking God's holy word and put it in the barbarian languages. That's a religious spirit. And Luther creates the German language they speak today. He brings the North and South languages together, makes the Bible, and gives it to the people. When he finishes it up toward the end of that, he begins to realize what's happening in Germany because of what we call the peasant revolt and, and the people killing. Some 50,000 people be killed during this time. It was a very bad time here. It was a religious war with other aspects of civil unrest. When he realizes how bad it is and that one of his young preachers from the monastery or from the, the Bible school, the seminary there, is kind of leading to the whole thing, he gets mad because he does not like the killing. He comes out of exile by will, which puts his life in danger. He goes back to his proven, now watch this. Now we've got to preach these kind of sermons. What time is it? Is it, is it okay? I was like, I want to make sure, okay. He comes back to his pulpit. He preaches seven sermons in seven days that stops the war. His preaching stops the whole war. Now that's called preaching. I like to have one day like that. I could preach on something and stop something. He stops a whole war in seven days by what he preached from the pulpit. That's the way the pulpit should be in our communities. And some pulpit should be for our whole country. That when it's the mouthpiece of God speaks, people hear and respond correctly. So he goes and writes more books and starts teaching and has a great life. Now, in a convent in Germany, a convent's where all the girls are, monastery's where all the guys are, there's these 13 nuns that want out because back then when you went in, you could not get out. So some of them next there were like nine nuns left that wanted out. And one of the nuns' dads brought supplies to the convent. So she went up to her dad on his visit. He came once a month to bring in supplies, food, and so forth to the convent. Says, Dad, there's nine of us, and we want out. Can you help us escape? So he thinks, because all right, next month I'll bring nine barrels of supplies. I'll empty a barrel and fill it with a nun. So that's what he does. He empties nine barrels and fills them up with nine nuns and nails them in. 
takes them out of the convent into the German forest far enough and then pops out nine nuns out of the barrels. And they walk from there to Wittenberg to where the revival capital city is. They, can you imagine nuns walking through the forest? They've been in the barrels for, for maybe a week or so. And they, you walk into a town and they, where's Martin Luther? They didn't know they were talking to him when they walked into the city because there was no CNN. They didn't know what he looked like, you know. And so they walk in. I just thought they probably terrible hair, the clothes ripped, you know, terrible. And where's Martin Luther? Why? Well, we want to join. We want to help. Finally, he goes, well, I'm, I'm Martin Luther. Oh, they're all excited they met Martin. So he has nine nuns in a monastery. Has a little place for them. And he thinks after a while, what am I going to do with these nuns? I've got nine nuns in a, in a monastery. What am I going to do with these nuns? I've got nine nuns. And then, you know, they're helping out things, but you, you got to do more than just have them, you know, do stuff. They're, they're nuns. they got to do something. And it bugs them. I've got nine nuns. <gasps> And he has the best idea after the Bible thing. Thank God he had this one. Or you couldn't be married. God bless him. He goes, let's get these nuns married to some of my preachers. Because back then, you had to be a celibate priest. Now, one reason, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why celibacy became a part of the Catholic Church was because they wanted the stuff so when the priest died and he was married, the land, the house, all that went to the family. Okay. So the Catholic Church wanted the buildings and the land and stuff, so they had to figure out a way to get it. They are the richest religious organization in the world. But they preach poverty, but they're loaded. There's something wrong with this picture. I'll let you figure it out at dinner, okay? So they make up a, a doctrine out of a Paul preference. When you read the Apostle Paul, he will say, this is the oracle of God, so that you just take it. Then so he says, I speak by permission, or I speak by, here's what I think. Now, I think you should still consider what he says, but it's not the oracle. It's Paul, who is a very, very important man in Christian Christianity, all right? But when it's a preference or by permission, it may or may not apply to you in a way that he would like. He would like all the preachers to stay single like he and work for Christ. But then he did say, if you can't control your sex drive, please get married because it's better to be married than get in trouble. Still a good rule today. All right? So what they did, they took Paul's preference, Paul's opinion, what he would like, and made it an oracle and created the sex problem they have in the Catholic Church today. That, that's really what it is. You cannot be celibate unless it's by the grace of God. Because exactly. God put in you a desire to reproduce. It's called the sex drive. It was God's idea. Don't fight it, just manage it better, okay? It's like prosperity. God don't mind you being rich, he don't want you to be greedy. He don't want you to trust in your riches. Have money, but use it the right way. So the sex, the sex thing was not from Lucifer. It came from Jesus. It came from the Father. He, he put it in us. So just don't reject it and be goofy. Manage it correctly and have a great time. So they took it away, 
So all these guys who want to have sex can't have sex if they start doing weird things. Because you're making them, they want to serve God, they're called of God, they love God, they want to serve God with all their hearts. It's, it's in them, but this is the rule. And so it, 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 it's causing trouble because it's not the oracle of God. It was Paul's, I would prefer. But if you can't, it's okay. All thing you have to realize, if you get married, you're going to have to spend time to take care of your family properly. And that's okay. And that's why he explained it. But we want the property. We need the stuff. So you cannot get married so when you die, we take the house, the church, and the land, and we keep it, and we build this great wealth. Let me tell you, be poor, be poor, be poor, poor. And that's what they do. And that's why the prosperity money message has a problem today with all Christianity because it has been preached poor and we misuse different parts of the life of Christ when he didn't, like, has no place to lay his head. That was one trip. It was not a lifestyle. Read the book, you stupid thing. He was born in a barn because Sheraton was full. It says it rather, and the inn was full. That means they'd have been in the Sheraton or in the hotel, but it was full, so at least they got a barn. So, we'll slap people. I can tell some of you don't quite get that yet. You've got to find out how poverty picked up government over you. Prosperity, the Bible speaks about us being rich. The word rich is used in the Bible in a positive way toward us. The word rich means to have a full supply for yourself, that you have enough money for you and your family to do what you need to do without the stress and anxiety of not having. That's what it means to be rich. Some people need more than I do. That's fine. I don't care if you need more than I do. I'm glad God supplies me, and I'm a wealthy, nice, rich guy. I am fully supplied. I want you to be, that's what it means to prosper. That's what it means to be rich. Okay? That's what it is. Well, I don't like that. Well, then be poor then. I'll take your money. And I'll have a nice life and create more missionaries and irritate some more devils around the world. Hallelujah. Amen? I'll have to preach that later. I'm trying to close, but I can't find the door. Still with me? So he gets all the nuns married but one. Her name was Kate, redheaded Kate. And she's kind of feisty like my mom, you know, like he'd go, what about this guy? No, I don't like him. She'd go, I like him, but he don't like her. So he kept going back and forth and she writes one day, I'll marry you. Now, Luther was 40 years old. She was in her 20s. Not a big deal, but that was the age there. Now, Luther was not against getting married. But he thought it was, would be unfair for a wife and possible children because his life was in danger at any moment to be killed. So back then, there was no social welfare. There was none of this. So the man had to be alive to take care of the family, all right? It's a very, that's the way it was in the 1500s. He felt if he got married and had children and they killed him, his wife and children would suffer. And he thought that would be unfair to them. So he 
never really pursued it, even though he was the guy orchestrating all the other marriages. We're very glad as Protestants we can get married and have babies, you know how that happens, and we can do all of that and still preach the gospel. Praise the Lord. Isn't that nice, guys? Thank you for the one amen. Well, then be celibate and goofy all by yourself, all right? So you've got you to thank Martin. When we get to heaven, we've got to thank Martin Luther for giving us the right to be married and be in the ministry. Is that wonderful? Because we've already, we'd be those Catholic, you know, weirdos trying to obey the Lord with frustration that causes problems. Seriously, that's what it is. I feel sorry for those. I understand their call of God. They really love Jesus. They're trying their best, and they're trying to obey the rules. Unless God anoints you and removes that and takes care of that desire, that sex drive, you're going to have a problem. And when you suppress it, it comes out a wrong way. And that's what happens in the Catholic Church. Okay? So he thinks about it. So he decides to marry Kate in a secret ceremony so nobody would talk him out of it. He gets married and then announces, we're married. The Pope has another heart attack. Everybody starts dying again. Even some of Martin Luther's friends like, oh, what? Because they still have that celibacy thing going. And guess what? He has babies. You know how that happens. And Kate writes, she, she, she talks about their first year marriage. They had some problems. Martin Luther did not know how to manage money. When you're single and you, he gave everything away is what he would do. He gave to the poor. He gave, so you know, when you're single, you can do stuff and you can live ways that you wouldn't live with a wife and children. But he forgot that he was married now and he gave all the salary, that, was, what, $20 a month or whatever it was, some small thing back then. And, and, and she, so she had conflict with that. And plus, he was a terrible housekeeper. She writes about, when I came to the house after we were married, the straw in the bed was stinky and rotten. He hadn't done anything. It was terrible. She tells all this. You know, 500 years from now, I'm going to be telling this story about how bad of a housekeeper Martin was. He was a bachelor. He didn't care. But now he's Mr. and Mrs. So they end their fussing she controls inside the house and the money he takes care of outside the house. That's how they sell the issue. So she goes on and takes care of the money. They have children. And Martin would later write, he loved being a husband. He loved being a dad. He said, this is the best thing. Everybody known had been this way. I'd, I'd have got married faster. He made those kind of, con- those kind of uh, comments. How has there been bowling? You know, bowling? You bowl around here in Virginia? You probably shoot stuff, but you bowl. <laughs> Martin would make, now Martin, the Luther family is like the most famous family in Europe now. He is the most famous preacher. He is the guy. So everything you do, everybody watches and they copy you. So he would play a game with his kids by putting up what we call pins and they take a ball and knock them down. So bowling and its rules came partly from Martin Luther's backyard. Some of the rules you obey today were the rules that Martin played with his kids doing this. So next time you go bowl, hi, Martin. Because that's where it comes from. All right? Now, he's now a famous preacher. You know, he's, 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 he's the guy. I mean, he is the Billy Graham. He is the guy. 
And so on Sundays, Saturday afternoons, Saturday evenings, he'd go down to the pub and drink Wittenberg beer. You can actually go taste the same beer. He, they still make it. It is the most terrible tasting stuff you could ever, I tasted it. I'd never been alcoholic by drinking that stuff. It would kill you from ever drinking again by drinking that stuff. It's that bad. But so you, they go down, they drink the Wittenberg beer from the 50s, and they still make it the same way. As the, you know. And the table he would sit around is still there in the pub. Some of the stuff that's, that's original is still in there. His, you can actually go to the library, his library, and see his actual books with his markings in the books that are still there. It's, 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 it's phenomenal what they have of that time period. So here's, here's you'll, you'll like this. I'm really trying to close, but I can't find the door. He, he'd go down and his Bible school students would go with him. They would drink with him and they would do talks about scripture and they'd take notes and they would print them because the printing press is going now and they would call table talks. They would print the table talks of Martin Luther. All right. So two things happened. They would keep drinking and talking to way late at night. Now, in those days, you went to church at sunrise. Guess why the Protestants go at 10 o'clock and 11? Because he had a hangover and he could not get up to officiate mass at sunrise. So he changed our worship hour to mid-morning. And that's why we go to church at 10, 11 o'clock all over the world because our founder had a hangover. Isn't that funny? That's an historical fact. So t tomorrow morning when you all come to church, think, thank you, Martin. We're glad we had to be here at 5.30 in the morning. We got to come at a good time at 10, 11 o'clock. And that's why Protestants go to church at that time period. Now, another great thing that happened, and something kind of interesting fact, was Mrs. Luther, Kate, noticed that Luther's students was selling the table talks that they would record and making money. She thought that was not right because it was her husband's thoughts and he deserved some of the money. So she goes down to the printers, go, hey, you're printing all these things, and they're my husband's thoughts, and we got babies to feed. We got stuff to do. And she creates what we call today the book royalty concept. So I very much love Kate Luther. She has blessed my life really well. And I get down and say, thank you, thank you, mwah, thank you. And that's where the book royalty comes from by saying, listen, I don't think it's right. And they agreed, and they begin a percentage of what was being made would be given to Luther, so forth. And that's how we got the book royalty concept. Let me bury him and get him to heaven now. He's, what, 20-some years older than Kate. They're children. All follow the Lord as we, as we understand. And uh, I met his descendants back when I was in my, what, tw about 27 years old. I was in Germany. And his great, 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 whatever it was, happened to be in that meeting. Which I died, went to German heaven. You know, my Lord had mercy. The Luther, the Luther descendant is here. And she brought the night, uh, the next night, the actual crest. They, had, they used to have family crests. We don't quite get that here in the States, but the Europeans had the crest, a symbol of their family. And Luther made a Luther crest for the family, and she had an original from back then, and she brought it for us to look at. So 
it was just for me, it was exciting. I'm goofy like that. I like that kind of stuff. Some people shoot stuff. I look at old stuff and feel very, I go into, oh, I don't need drugs. Just give me some old and it happens. You know, I'm, I'm goofy like that, you know. If I'm not in church, I'm in a library or talking to an old person. That's what I do. And uh, so when somebody dies back then, they think you're most honest when you face death. Your most honest words that you will say is when you'll be dead within a few days. So if you ever see any of the sketches of Luther's death scene, there's, they, they have people there, and there's a guy standing there with a piece of paper and a pencil, kind of like off to the side, like this. And we don't get it because we don't think this way. It's not a part of our culture today. But back then, they had the guy that would sit there waiting for him to die and write down everything he said because they want to know what he said. And the, the Pope and everybody and the, the German people were nervous when Luther got sick and was going to die. He died in actually the, the town where he was born. He was there visiting, got sick, and he died there. And um, so they wanted to see, would he call upon the Pope to have mercy on his soul? Or would he stay faithful to the, the just shall live by faith revelation? I'm glad to report he affirmed his faith in Christ before he died. He did not call upon the Pope or any human person. I am joyfully intact my soul with Christ. He alone in whom I believe. And he makes those final statements and leaves this earth and meets Jesus for the very first time on the other side. We today, we today, oh, Mr. Luther, we are still the great, 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 great grandchild of the revival. Everything that happened in the Reformation gave birth to all the movements that we, we like, that I write about, that I talk about. We Pentecostals are the next type of group that came out of that revival. It's the longing, longest lasting revival in history because the Reformation Day is still going. It's still moving yeah. throughout time. Think, a little German monk got caught in a thunderstorm and caused all of this. He just didn't say, ouch. He turned the world upside down and gave us Jesus in a personal way. For over a thousand and some years, you had to go through the mediator of a Catholic priest. They felt they were the mediator between God and man. He removed it and said, you by faith alone. Bam. And since then, the world's been changing. The reason why I didn't answer the question, why did it take so long for man to figure out how to move movable type? When religion controls things, progression is small. When the Holy Spirit is loosed, like it happened, inventions, progression starts happening. And you can watch from the Reformation forward the advancement of the human race, especially in the Western nations that we call them, because we got rid of the dark devil and we got the illuminating Holy Spirit who wants to help us to have an abundant life spiritually and naturally. So all of a sudden, medical breakthroughs, governmental government breakthroughs, technological breakthroughs, things begin to happen from that point. And Western Europe became the leading place in the world because of Christ. He came into our lands and into the hearts of our people. And he changed them and enlightened them and gave them ideas that made living easier. Thank God. 
And America comes along and we, and we are founded by Christian people. They come here for the wanting the freedom of worship, that we can worship how we feel in our own conscience. The Quakers quaked. The Presbyterians were stiff. Whatever, they did it how they wanted to do it. And God honored them. And our nation, we've been one of the great nations of the world. We have blessed the nations of the world through our inventions. Electricity, the light bulb, the car, the airplane, medical things. More that has happened in our country, not, not the only country, but more in America than any other country. Why? Because that's what happens when God is the God of your nation. He helps your soul and your life. And I don't want us in this time of our, our revolution and this battle that we're in with our culture that we choose pagan gods because that stuff will come back and stop everything. The freedom of conscience, the freedom that we have comes in Christ and it comes into our nation. Why do our founding fathers want us to be free? Because of what they knew in Christ too. They've been abused in Europe politically, but also they found freedom in Jesus. They wanted freedom. We do not want to control your faith. We want you to believe and worship the God as you see fit in your own conscience. That's a big concept that we take for granted. And a lot of that started with Luther. He set us free on a half verse. The just shall live by faith. So at Halloween, Dress up like Luther and Kate. Go get your candy and be Luther and Kate. Amen. You, you want me to talk a little more about the money? I got, you get a moment? I, I want to talk about why there's a money problem. A little bit more. I'm, well, I'll close when I close. You have to leave, just leave. There's nothing for me to do but go back to my hotel room and sit there. Because I don't want to watch TV because I get depressed. So, the money issue. Why is there a money issue with ministry and church and stuff? One, because there have been misuses of it in our recent times, all right? Prosperity preachers, some of them have preached it with the wrong disposition. They preach it for self-gain, and you can feel that, all right? We, we have to accept that those have done that, but the Scriptures are still there about giving, receiving, prospering, so on. So we have to be able to come back to those things. But it wasn't the televangelists that started this problem. It was back there when they were taking people's money under false spiritual pretenses to build the cathedrals and to fund the wars of the Holy Land. Right. I appreciate the cathedrals. They are absolutely beautiful. But they were built by lying to the people. And so when they woke up in the Reformation and realized, I'll say, that, I'll say this way, they want their money back from great-grandpa back because you lied to us. They were so angry about that understanding that it created a generational resident inside of all of them, myself included, that there's a little mm about the preacher and the money. And it comes from that time period. So it didn't start with the televangelist or the goofy prosperity guy that's preaching it for, for taking money for himself. It began there. And I need you to consider, let me read. I'm a prosperity preacher. I believe in it. I want you to, I think it's God wants you to have enough to live a good life, take care of your family, have a holiday worth going on every year, okay? 
you know, and, and, and have enough money to be a blessing to other people. And, and, you know, to me, that's what it means to prosper. I accept that some of my friends have preached the prosperity message for self-gain. Like I said, it's true. They did, and it was wrong. You don't preach it that way. That's, you preach it of how God can get money to you not taking it from you. That's that same spirit from the 1500s and before that they fought back then, same spirit. I need you to separate all that negative stuff from these verses in the Bible and let the word talk to you and let the word become a part of prospering you. God wants to help you financially. And sometimes we good Christians that love Jesus and are anointed with the gifts and prophesying and healing and we're broke. Most of us are broke. Most of us are survival. And, and this is one way the devil has worked overtime to keep us like this. You, you're going to have to go back and do what the Bible, read what the word says and forget the guy that preached it the wrong way. And, and overcome that moment and say, this is the word and let the word talk to you. And let the word begin to do that so that blessing can come to you. Now, there's nothing greater than spiritual prosperity, which is salvation and all the beautiful things that you get by being born again and being spirit-filled and being the family. That's the number one. But don't let that be the only. All this other stuff's available too. It's like a little story about the people that used to come across from England to to America on the big boats like Titanic, you know, the, the boats. And this couple had bought tickets moving to America and they were third, fourth class, and they didn't read their ticket, what it included. So they didn't know it included meals. So they came with their kids, and they brought food with them. So when it came time for breakfast, they'd go to their room, and they'd eat what they brought, which after a while was not very good. And one day, almost when they got to harbor, he's upstairs on the, on the deck talking to another passenger and talking about the meals, and they go, well, we, we don't have that kind of ticket. He goes, we have the same ticket. And that family had been eating the meals and the fresh fruit and all the stuff while the other family was down. They're still on the way to America. They're still all coming, but they're not living in the benefit of what was bought for their ticket. This is your ticket. Please read and, and take advantage of everything now and that which is to come. He, he has a blessing now and that which is to come. And money is a big thing. God wants you to have enough money to wake up every day without anxiety or the stress of how am I going to pay the bills or take care of my family. That's what prosperity is about. And this whole thing of, mm, comes from that time period of the Luther and our time period of the prosperity message God has sworn to restore. I want to prosper you. I want to help you to have a home that you own, not that you live a whole life in rentals. I want you to have a car that works on gas and not by faith. Does that make sense? And a car appropriate for the size of your family. A home appropriate for the size of your family. To educate your children. And to go on holidays that are good. What's a good holiday? When your kids cry when they have to leave. A bad holiday is when they cry when you get there. There's nobody in their right mind says no to that unless you've been tainted by the historical poverty or the modern misuse 
of the prosperity scriptures. So, Father, we pray tonight that you come upon us right now and adjust the money attitudes. Help us to overcome the negatives and to find the right way of living this part of the Christian life today. Let everybody in this church be able to have a full supply financially. What they need to do life and take care of their family. A full supply. They tithe, they give, they help others out. Father, and you said, what we sow we shall reap, what we give shall come back to us. Father, let it come back to them, into their hands, where they can use it and be blessed by it. And I bind the spirit of poverty. Holy Spirit, I ask that you cause us to see it in our lives, how it talks to us, how how we've accepted it. Show us. Show us so we can see it. And then help us to get rid of it and put the right abundant scriptures in our lives appropriately and honestly. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before I close tonight, I want to, to pray on one more thing. Did you enjoy the message, by the way? So uh, uh, I gave it to you because, because October 31st is coming. I want to make sure it's not just Batman Day. It's Luther Day. So I want to put that back in your heart. Sit down with your family and talk about the story. And again, there's a lot more to Luther than what I, I gave you the quick Robert's Laird and Reader Digest part, okay? There's a lot to it. His story is amazing. There was a movie made called Luther just a few years ago, and it's really a good movie. Uh, it's a mo- The one that's black and white goes on forever, and it's so boring that you'll fall asleep. But the modern one that's made just a few years ago is really nice. You, you should watch it. Or I showed it in my church, what I did. I always showed it on, on the week of Halloween. or February. I showed it so they could see it because it illustrates all that we're saying. You can see the whole thing. In, in vision form. But I want to pray on something before I, before I let you go. Is um, medical word curses. All right? Tomorrow morning we'll have a proper prayer line and things like that. But we're not against doctors and nurses. But sometimes when you go to them, they look at you and say, this is what's wrong with you and this way it'll be forever. They, they, they make a declaration of permanency about you, your child, or something. And, and it's the way they are. Well, I don't like them. No, no, don't, don't dislike them. Just know that they're not the final statement about your situation. Like diabetes runs in my family. So I was diagnosed about three years ago. You're now a diabetic. For years, I would go back and forth. And now you're a diabetic. And it's only going to be forever. I bind you. I resist you in Jesus' name. But I listen to you because I've got to take care of myself medically to the point that when you're healed, they'll go like what they did to me just recently. You don't need these two minutes. We're going to give you this one because you're really doing good. It's working. I'm getting better. I'm doing the natural and the Lord's working. So my goal, maybe when I come back, I'll be totally, you know, no more of this diabetic stuff, all right? Because I really like cake. Like the one that it was 29 pounds. I'm like, oh, my Lord, Jesus. You know how many was at the book sign? They saw that big old cake. It was 29 pounds. I'm like, how do you make a cake that heavy? But I would sure like to eat it. 
Praise the Lord. All of it. This is my problem. I like it all, you know. So, but they, they make these statements. And because we respect doctors, we respect the medical world because they are smarter than us and they understand things and that's why they are what they are. They make statements that we just accept. I want to break those medical word curses off of you tonight. We're not disregarding them because some things they say are naturally true for the moment. But we want to put over you a new one. I'm the Lord that healeth thee. I'm the God that removes disease from your midst. And let's make that the final statement. That's what I had to do when they came to me. You're diabetic. I said, I just sat there and I listened and I asked all the questions because I need to understand. I, I, I need to understand how this whole thing works physiologically. And I, they told me this and that and I understood and I obeyed them with the medicines. But in my heart, you're not the final statement. When I walked out of that meeting, I got in my car and I sat down in the car and I prayed. I said, all right, I accept the natural side of this moment. But you're not going to be, like they said, forever a part of my life. I'm going to do the natural that they tell me to do because there's a part of that responsibility. And the Lord, you made our bodies, you can fix them. And if I need a new part, you can give me a brand new one. But sometimes we just accept it. And I called it medical word curses. You see what I'm saying? You see, I'm, I'm putting together, I'm not mad at the doctor. I just don't want their statement to be in your mind, in your heart, that's the way it's going to be. Everybody get that? How many have some of those kind of medical word curses have been spoken over your life or your, or your children? Would you just stand up wherever you are? And we're, we're going to pray together. We're going to pray where you're standing. And we're going we're gonna to break those things and put new kind of words over you. And I don't care what it is. God can heal you. And sometimes what hinders the healing is because that statement is more believed than the word of the Lord because we don't know what to do with it. So you don't throw it out, you just make it number two, not number one, and say whatever it is, it can be a minor thing to a major thing. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you tonight as your children, and we come to you saying we appreciate the medical world. But Father, many of these doctors have has declared over us that this person, this particular ailment or this particular condition is the way it's going to be forever and it's going to be like this in our lives. We don't believe that is a final statement over us. So we take charge over that improper announcement, that improper label. And through the name and the word of the Lord, we break the power of that word medical curse. We kind of to die and to lose its control over your thoughts and your body in the name of Jesus. We command those words to die in Jesus' name, to lose its control in your mind and in your body in Jesus' name. We break its authority. It does not have final authority in Jesus' name. We announce a new label, a new word. I am the God that healeth thee. We announce that over you tonight. I am the God that blesses your food and your water and removes sickness from the midst of you. We pronounce that over your life. By his stripes, you are healed. 
We pronounce that the creator can still create. That if there is an organ or a part that is disintegrated, does not function, we thank you that he shall create a new part for you and put it in your body supernaturally. A new lung, new kidney, pancreas, eye, ear, whatever it may be. The creator still creates and restores us to proper health. Hallelujah. And things that are illegal in our body, they have found a residence inside of us illegally. They must come out of our bodies. Parasites. All these other illegal cells that run around our blood systems must die and come out of you in the name of Jesus. We command the life of illegal cells to come out of them and for them to die in Jesus' name. Let everything work the way God created it to work and to work in unison with all the other parts of your body. We pray that today. We pray that today. We speak to generational curses that are sicknesses of the family, hereditary diseases. We break that alignment and that continuation. We cause it to stop. It's going from generation to generation in you. It stops now in Jesus' name. It shall not be transferred. It shall not go to children and children and children. Through the name of Jesus, these curses of illnesses and diseases shall cease its traveling through the generations of your family in Jesus' name. We pronounce good things shall be transferred, not unhealthy things, in the name of Jesus. Now, right away, just thank God. Lift your hand up and just thank God however you feel. Thank him for that and pray and just let that anointing work over you. Yeah, I'll pray that. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. I pray over folks who have early death in their family. They die at early ages. We command that spirit of death to come out of your family in the name of Jesus. You shall live out your allotted days that God has called you to. Long life will I satisfy you. Long life will I satisfy you, says the word. We break the power of the spirit of death that robs you through early departures, through tragedies and sicknesses. We command that spirit that brings tragedy into your family. The curse of go in Jesus' name. We break the power of that over your life. There should not be continual tragedies in your family. And the fear of it must go in the name of Jesus. Yeah, I'll pray that. And I pray for you that are just renters and never owners, that you will be free from the curse of renting and come into the joy of owning. Father, move the people from just being a renting family, but never an owning, possessing family. We pray a new anointing, a new mindset, 
a new management style to come over you. That you'll go from renting to owning. And from this day forward in your family, you shall be owners and possessors of the land. Possessors of the land. Possessors of the land in the name of Jesus. We pray over your giving that you've given over the years. What you've been robbed from. What has been stole from you. We pray for a restoration of lost, stolen goods out of your life. Let it be restored financially, opportunity-wise. Let things that have been robbed from your family be restored, even past generations that have been robbed that you shall reap from their lives too in Jesus' name. Generational reaping. Generational restoration shall come in the name of Jesus. Come in the name of Jesus. We will not be deprived of that which is rightfully ours and our families. Our families. What was stole from our grandparents, what was stole from our parents, shall also be stored to us and our children. Generational restoration, I hear the Lord say. Generational restoration in this church. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you turning these things around in Jesus' name. Educational opportunities shall not be deprived from the families of this house. Educational, proper educational opportunity. I hear the word say, I'll restore to your families. I'll restore to your families in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Father, just bless them with good, fun stuff too. Good holidays. Just stuff that they like. Because he, he stores and blesses you with that. He, if you like motorbikes, may God give you a motorbike, a motorcycle. If you like boats, may God give you a boat. Father, bless your kids with things and opportunities that they can just enjoy. There's no other purpose but to enjoy. Let them enjoy things, that joyful things come to their lives. Father, some of these folks have not had a holiday in a long time, and they need a good Christmas. They need a good holiday. Be able to go on a holiday without a financial stress about it. Father, give your children holidays where they can enjoy this earth richly that you gave us. How many need that, that kind of thing? You haven't had a decent holiday in a while? Just say, I'm available for that, Lord. Lord, you, you see, just bless them with it. They do things that it's not the kind of holiday that they want. It's not the kind of holiday they really want. Give them that which they really want and what they really want to enjoy. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I used to travel all over the world now, all I knew was the airport, the hotel, the church, and the restaurant. 
I mean, I went all over the world, Africa, Europe. And when I got, I said, Lord, I never get to do anything but just go to the airport, the restaurant, the hotel, and the church. He said, well, it's your fault, not mine. So what do you mean? Because I didn't say you couldn't have a few days and go see the animals in Africa. And I loved you. I didn't know it was okay to actually enjoy this stuff too. I was working for Jesus, loved him, but I thought, you know, I never get to see an elephant. I don't get to go to the Louvre Museum in Paris. Now I do now. And I have no bad feeling about it. I actually enjoy it and tell you everybody about it. Father, change your mindsets that we can enjoy the blessings of the Lord that maketh rich and adds no sorrow with it. Amen. Give God a good shout. Amen, Pastor. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I receive all of that. Amen. Let's all stand up together tonight. Amen. And uh, shake hands and be friendly. I'll see you tomorrow morning. You're dismissed.